welcome to This Must Be the Place, the show that reveals the unique physical, cultural, and emotional layers of places. Kevin Patricio is co-founder and CEO of the Basqueland Brewing Project, a craft brewery located in Hernani, right outside San Sebastián in the Basque country of Spain. Before doing this, Kevin had to be born somewhere, and he came into the world in Baltimore, USA. He spent a good chunk of life in New York City working at restaurants such as the Red Cat, Blue Hill, and the Gramercy Tavern. He moved to San Sebastián around 2011, and he can correct me if I'm wrong, and along with his wife, opened and worked in the kitchen of La Madame, a restaurant located about 100 steps away from La Concha Beach. He has set roots here, raised a family, and is clearly committed to a Basque existence. Kevin, thank you for hanging with me today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, th did I was everything accurate with my research? Everything perfect except for Gramercy Tavern. Uh huh. My ex chef became the head guy there, Mike Anthony, who I used to work for. But I love the Gramercy. Mm -hmm. I, I'll take it if that's what it says on <laughs> on the internet. Yeah. I will, that's a nice accolade to have. Yeah, yeah. I scraped off the internet, but I always want to ask, and maybe I should have asked before we started to press record. But I wanted to get the right the right facts first. So let's begin with your own personal narrative, and that's case in point, letting us know a bit about your history. Um, I gave a quick overview, but tell us about your own story, about where you are from, and why did you end up living here in, in Donostia in San Sebastian? Sure. Well, I was born to an immigrant father. He was from the Philippines, north of Luzon, the big island in the Philippines, who came over to first Pittsburgh and then Baltimore, and he married a third-generation German descendant who was from Baltimore. So I'm a big mutt. If you can imagine that encapsulated my my upbringing in white Baltimore, uh, well, white on these in the suburbs at least, uh, a racially diverse city uh, and surroundings, but not a whole lot of Filipinos. Mm. From there, I moved after college to New York City, like a lot of kids do, uh, with a, with a big dream. And at that point, I I had actually graduated from college thinking I was going to go to culinary school because mm -hmm. I loved food. I loved restaurants, but I had I had gone to do the prerequisite for, at the time, the Culinary Institute of America, and I cooked for an absolute bastard. I don't know if I can say that without you bleeping it out, but- um, No, it's fine. Uh, and he pretty, pretty much chased me out of the kitchen. Um, so what happened was I still love food, and I found my way to New York working for her Food & Wine magazine, and I landed a dream job there, such a dream job that I, I hit on all cylinders there. It was great. But actually, it wasn't so great because I thought that I was invincible. And so at the young age of 28, I'm like, all right, now I'm going to set out on my restaurant career. And what was that job in food and wine? Well, was it? Yeah. Uh, I'll tell you, um, I, was, I, I started out in marketing. I was one day, a chef didn't show up for an event that was, we were planning for a, an advertiser, and the show must go on. That, mm. That's kind of like the motto of, at the time, you know, marketing events, promotions, like like the show must go on. So I ran to the Whole Foods and I grabbed a bag of of different ingredients and I ran back and I just went on stage and I did the show. Our editor-in-chief, who was there, Dana Cowan at the time, she looked at me and she said, "I we have you in the wrong job. Mm -hmm. You need to be doing more stuff on behalf of the magazine, cooking. So that was then after, you know, one and a half years at the magazine, that became the dream job. I mm. was flying all over the United States doing these cooking events and shows and being on NBC Today show and doing uh, all this talking head stuff. And then just, it got too big and it got too much. And what happened was not too much like I couldn't handle it, but 
um, I was out of my element. I was at best a good amateur cook. Mm. And here I am doing dishes with some of the best chefs in the United States. Mm -hmm. And we're talking not just like kind of, no, Danielle Ballou, mm. Gabriel Cruther, Dan Barber, and, and I would have a dish. Mm -hmm. Like, what was that? So I, I, I felt like a hack. And while, whilst I could have gone and can continue to do those, uh, maybe do a, uh, you know, a commercial here and there or things like that, I was like, you know, I want to do this for real. I want to know what I'm talking about. So I convinced them to let me cut my hours. I started working at Blue Hill as a stage, realized how little I really knew. And then it was like one day became another day and then two days became three and then three became five. And I'm like, I like cooking. I'm going to, I'm mm -hmm. going to leave the magazine. Mm -hmm. And maybe professionally, probably one of the craziest decisions someone could make. You know, my friend, <laughs> Jim Meehan, who, you know, loves me dearly. He's one of the best cocktail guys in the world. He's like, you know, once I started having a, a tough time, you know, financially after the big move or uh, like, who am I? You know, like, what, what am I doing now um, after realizing like, you know, I got to work my way back from nothing. He's like, you left probably the best job of all time. Mm -hmm. You know, unlimited expense account, uh, massive respect in the industry. That was a, an interesting move, to well, say the least. In retrospect, you, you, you just described it as, you know, you were faking it till you made it or you were a hack. Do you really, in retrospect, consider yourself to have been out of your element or do you, were you harsh on yourself back then? No, I was absolutely harsh on myself. Mm -hmm. I want, what I wanted was the, the background. I wanted the CV to match what I was, what I was saying. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I was searching for something more. It was, it's not just about the recognition, not just about uh, the hits, or at that, at that point in time, there was really no social media. Mm -hmm. This is circa 1998 to 2004. But I, I needed personally more. It's funny that you mentioned that were you hard on yourself. Mm -hmm. I'm the hardest person on myself that there can possibly be. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe that has to do with my Catholic upbringing, although I don't <laughs> think so. I think that I'm recovering Catholic, but I think that's just something that's uh, been ingrained in me, uh, just trying to pull myself up, like mm -hmm. being like, no, you need to do it this way. No, you need to do it the right way. So you did the tour of duty in New York and, and all these kitchens, and now here you are. What's the what's the trace of the line from kitchens in New York to Donostia San Sebastian? I mean, it, from a third person perspective, looking from afar, it looks heavenly that line for a lot of people, right? And a lot of people consider you worked in New York, now you here you are in a culinary capital in the world. That looks like a wonderful career arc, even though right now you you sound very harsh on yourself. It's been a great trip, and I have to say, like the best part of it was actually meeting my wife, which I owe to the food industry in New York. I owe it to food and wine. I owe it to the restaurant industry. And then having been on this adventure with her, which is has been hard at times, but going moving from New York to San Sebastian, having three children, starting one business, moving on from that business, that that business is now still carrying on successfully, and then starting the brewery, which we'll, I'm sure we'll mm -hmm. talk about very shortly. The arc was leaving the magazine, starting on the salad station, moving up onto Hotline in a different restaurant, moving then to, well, uh, I'm advancing quickly, but I need to know more about front of house if I want to open my own restaurant one day, which was the goal. So I need to go be on the floor. I want to buy wine, which I then started doing. Everything that, that I was putting together was 
trajectory for being a restaurateur. Mm -hmm. So I knew every aspect of the business, the hard business that it is. So then um, in 2010, we had our first child. My wife, Maite, and I had our first child in New York. While working in the restaurant industry, it was challenging. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, every couple out there that has their first child, it's challenging no matter what, let alone being in that industry in that city. Um, we had no family support, meaning my my immediate mm-hmm. family was down in Baltimore, uh, or at least near, northern New Jersey, but not readily close to help babysit, give us a respite. And my wife's family was in San Sebastian. So your wife is, is from here, from San Sebastian. She's Basque. Exactly. Mm-hmm. She's from Donosti. And um, we had met before I left food and wine at a press luncheon at Danielle. Mm. And I had, uh, funnily enough, seen her the night before and didn't have the cojones to go and approach her and say, hey, you know, what's your name? How are you? <clears throat> Am I Kevin? But I found, I found her the next day, 12 hours later and 65 mm. blocks north. So I didn't lose my opportunity that time. And we've been happily together ever since. Mm. So then- Moving then onto you know f- that arc that you're talking about, how we got over here was then it was a life decision. Are we going to keep doing this in New York, mm-hmm. grinding it out? We're not tethered to anything. Let's let's look at this. Let's make a move. And I was the one who really drove that decision. My wife was like, "Really, you really want to leave New mm-hmm. York and go to San Sebastian? It's a it's quite a different place." And I I did. I went for it. Um, now we're seven, almost seven years in, mm-hmm. and it's starting now to feel like the right decision. You know, it's interesting because I talk about that third person perspective. If somebody looked at your career arc and said, you know, food and wine magazine, and then kitchens in New York City, and now here you are in Donosti and San Sebastian, and San Sebastian is known as a culinary hotspot, that it would be very calculated. Yeah, of course, it makes sense. It's a, a great career move to move from New York to San Sebastian, but it sounds like that wasn't pri- your primary motivation necessarily to move from New York to San Sebastian. It had to do with more personal reasons. And it just so happened that the confluence of the emergence or the recognition of San Sebastian sort of merged with your natural personal move here. Is, is that fair to say? That's yeah. fair to say. We we looked at several places, some realistically, some not realistically, uh, but it really came down to stay in New York, go to Baltimore, go to San Sebastian. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I love, I love Baltimore. I love mm-hmm. uh, going there. I, I couldn't see the opportunities at the time that that could have existed there. I think it's it's a great city, and they're doing amazing things now uh, culinarily. But just the opportunities, and and to come here, we didn't come here to open that restaurant. That it fell into our lap once we got here. I actually wanted to come over and just spend a little bit of time off the radar mm-hmm. work as a cook, mm. as, a, as, as l- like, let's say a salary cook in a great restaurant, mm-hmm. not with any kind of like, I have this aspiration to become the sous chef here. I have this aspiration to do this. I really just wanted to learn mm-hmm. um, while providing for my family. And, and at the time too, I was still doing uh, something that, that I, I didn't really tell you about. But from the time I left the magazine, I was always getting approached by clients of the magazine to do freelance consulting work, mm-hmm. whether it was for liquor brands or whatnot. That was a way pretty much I subsidized a, a family on a cook salary. Um, so then I came over, here, came over here to San Sebastian and I kept doing that and learning was the primary goal. And then my wife's family had opened this spot. In my 
opinion, it was in dire need of help. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to sit idly by when they were so generous to us to help us out with the move and, and, and helping us move into an old apartment that was being unused, plus they're my extended family. Hey, I'll step in and help. And you're talking about the restaurant La Madame. La Madame. We're talking about that. That's correct. So let's talk about Donostia specifically. What, what are some of the features of this place that have had an impact on you and how has living here changed you? Because you don't sound like a, a calculating careerist thinking about where the culinary hotspots are and sort of following those hotspots wherever they take you. It was a very personal story, finding a uh, your Basque wife moving here and, and just by confluence and coincidence, <laughs> it, it helped your career as well, I would suppose. But tell me, what is it about this place that has changed you or, or what strikes you as a as a chord in this place that is very different from, from your life in the United States? This place has made me calm down quite a bit. Now, I'm not actually not that calm. I just much more tolerant of mm -hmm. of... Uh, and conscious of being impatient. So for me, living in New York, it was, you know, a junkie with his, with his medicine. Mm -hmm. um, I needed something to get right away. It got done. And you get used to that. You get hooked to it. And then coming here and realizing that things don't work like that. Mm -hmm. Pretty much things don't work like that anywhere outside of New York City mm. or a big, or let's say a big city. And really it doesn't work that way in San Sebastian. Mm. Coming here, I was scared first to come here and then start to cook different food because uh, initially, of course, you can come here and say, all right, I'm going to open a Basque restaurant now. I'm going to do things like Elcano, which mm -hmm. is one of my favorite. It's a one Michelin star restaurant. It wasn't then when we moved here, but it was always just focused on product, the grill, affable, but not too over the top service and just the best cuisine that you could possibly imagine. And what am I going to do? Mm -hmm. Do that? That's disingenuous. I'm, I'm not going to do Basque food. I'm not Basque. And uh, to, to describe El Cano's in Getaria, and it specializes in, in seafood, particularly uh, grilled fish. Uh, was it turbot or something like that? That's a specialty, or am I getting the wrong fish? That's right. That's right. Grilled turbo mm -hmm. is the thing that you absolutely must have there. But then there's a, a range of all these other, of all these other dishes. So mm -hmm. I had to figure out quickly when I landed. I had this plan that I was going to work in all in, in one or two different places and learn. All of a sudden, I'm thrown directly into, well, we need a concept in this new restaurant. What's that going to be? So now I need to come up with what's going to work here, what's going to draw people to to this place. Let's use Basque ingredients, and but not cook anything traditionally Basque. Mm. And therefore, it was things that I had a craving for, whether it be Thai food, or something slightly Japanese. Uh, you'll see that like, uh, the theme turns out to be a lot of Asian, a lot of uh, Mexican style food, but we didn't take it so far where it was just kind of like a, a menu that read like a newspaper. It read more like a novel. Mm. Like everything had its place, varying degrees of, of difference, uh, varying degrees of spice. And because we did something different and we had to stick with our guns once you, once you go that way, uh, it wound up working out little by little. Like I'm when I say little by little, it's something that they say here, poco a poco, mm -hmm. like year over year over year, people were like would find a tolerance level for the little bit of spice. I mm -hmm. mean, when you're coming, we're in a place now in San Sebastian where people think garlic is spicy. Mm -hmm. And so we're trying to do something like a, like a merluza, which is hake fish with clams. That's a tra traditional dish here. 
we're doing it with a little bit of Thai chili. Mm. It's and it works wonderfully. And I'm I meant to ask you that because it's daunting for chefs, I would assume, from outside this region to come here and and find a foothold. But you did just that, and I mean, how did you manage the cooking culture here? How did you settle into this culture? It's known to be protective and and insular, right? With all the chocos and Basque cooking societies, and and not, they're not particularly effusive historically about their cooking. And correct me if I'm wrong. And it would seem somebody coming here to get a foothold in Basque cuisine is a very intimidating prospect. But from what you're telling me, you didn't even necessarily try to do that. That's not even the game that you wanted to play, right? It's it's trying to do something different with the ingredients of the region, but not necessarily be a Basque cook. How would you describe what you did? The 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 first thing was just be respectful of the culture mm-hmm. in and of itself. The culture and the food, you have to be. It's too good. It's wonderful. And it, it takes a, a lot of dedication to say, we're not going to mess with a good product. Predominantly fish. Then of course there's the chuleta, which is a big prime rib steak, or even the the vegetables, which you find sparingly in restaurants, not necessarily at home, but in restaurants that are, well, if we have these peas, we're just gonna saute them lightly with a little bit of onion and a little bit of ham. If we have this fish, we're gonna salt it, add olive oil, grill it, and maybe it'll have a touch of garlic and parsley Uh, and then an acid, lemon and or um, cider vinegar. Mm-hmm. That's the range of the ingredients when you're, when you're talking about true Basque mm-hmm. cuisine. I love it. Knowing I want more, not all the time, but just when I, when I want it. I want mm-hmm. something like a Thai food when I want it. Or I want a Mexican food when I want it. Mm-hmm. And so when I, um, when I got here, I said, all right, well, I'm not going to try to do that because it's being done. It's being done at such a high level that what we're falling into in this space, it needs to be somewhere around a a twelve to fourteen dollar or euro uh starter. Whereas maybe an eight to fourteen and then a sixteen to twenty two euro second. Mm-hmm. Um and that's just because of the decor of the place, the the place where it was, uh and and the clientele we wanted to draw. And so I started to play with the ingredients and which are fantastic. Like the, the materia prima or the raw product that's here is absolutely exquisite. And I think if I even try to do truly Basque food because of, I, I, because I was respectful because I, I always just nodded and gave the right, I don't know, the right, the right face, the right mm-hmm. uh, pers- uh, uh, personality to who I was and who I was interacting with the chefs who were here wanted to be uh, available to me and when they wanted to help i remember vividly being at the being invited to a bass culinary event a bass culinary center event and i met with uh, all the big bass chefs were there i was luckily invited so i went and i had no less than five people come up to me and ask me hey how's it going if you need any help let me know which i thought was really great first of all like mm-hmm. that community of chefs not being insular not mm-hmm. being like oh the outsiders here and And for people who are listening to the podcast, yeah, I don't look at all Basque. I'm mm-hmm. I'm half Filipino. I'm I am so not Basque looking. So uh, there is an actual color difference. Uh, but when Andoni Adoris from Ugaritz comes up to me and he's like, "Look, tell me what do you need? What do you need to find here?" And I kind of like looked, panned around the room, and I looked at him. I go, "Look, I can't really find good tomatoes here." Mm-hmm. You know, when Basque people listen to this podcast, and I'd be like, "Yeah, but our tomatoes are fantastic," <laughs> and I'd be like, "They're not." 
They're not good at mm. all. Um, they're round and they're slightly red and mm. you serve them all year round and I'm sorry, but that's not what I'm looking for. It's funny. When I go looking for tomatoes, I have to find the rough tomatoes, which are actually from what Southern Spain and genetically engineered or something like that. Yeah. Well, they must be if they're all uniform like that. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, Andoni saw immediately through what I was asking him for. And he's like, look, for the vegetables, go to France, go, go to San Juan de Luz. And that's 25 minutes from here by car. What happened really quickly, and that was a sea change for me in the restaurant was, okay, I can get amazing seafood product here, great meat product, great cured meats, great olive oil. For butter, other dairy, vegetables, go to France. Mm. And, and, and then when I realized, like, I, I kept trying to eat my way around Basque French country, and I'm like, this is terrible. Now I have, now I'm, I have Basque people, Spanish Basque mm -hmm. people, and now Basque French people <laughs> mad at me. And this is going to blow a lot of people's minds. They're, they weren't allowed to age meat. Mm. So, you know, like that 38 dry aged mm -hmm. uh, porterhouse, like mm -hmm. that we crave in the United States or here, you know, th th that's, that's part of how you do steak. Mm -hmm. They weren't allowed to do it. So I'm like, why is that, why is that so bad here? Um, so what I, what I did was I took the best of both worlds and I was able to, I started doing a cheese program and cheeses that I would just bring back from San Juan de Luz, which is where we live in a culture here in the Basque country, Spain, where everything's like Manchego, Iriazabal, this. There's no, like there was there's not a huge mm -hmm. culture of stinky cheese. Mm -hmm. So I was bringing that back and bringing the vegetables back and other dairies and just using like just great French butter. Yeah, the exotic cheese here is curado, right? Yeah. Oh, ahumado, very smoked or, or cured is to and, intensity. Yeah. Exactly. And they'll be like, oh, it's too strong. Mm -hmm. Muy fuerte, muy fuerte. So, yeah. you know, but taking that and be like, yes, that's what we do here. So let me ask you, something that has been, uh, bugging me is not the right word, but has been a phrase that I hear often in food television, food writing, and people talking about cooking is the ingredient. It's a quality ingredient. It's la materia prima. I want to figure out what does that mean? Is it Does it mean a lack of mass industrialization and production of eggs, mass fishing, uh, farmed fishing? What does a good product mean? Because, you know, is it a terroir of where the product comes from that makes it a good quality ingredient? And I'm doing air quotes around ingredient because that's what I hear often in, in culinary circles, respect the ingredient. It has to be a good ingredient. What makes it a good ingredient? Why can't we get a good ingredient in North Carolina? And I'm just picking on North Carolina just for fun. Well, you can get a good ingredient anywhere, but that it, there a lot has to do with terroir, like you say, and it goes like this. If you go to, to Burgundy, you're not going to get a good Cabernet Sauvignon in Burgundy. You're going to get a good Pinot Noir. That's what grows there. That's what grows well there. Mm -hmm. So starting to, to trying to transplant things from one region to another that they don't grow well, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Mm. Now, we're, we are lucky, and I'm making the quotation sound, uh, signs now, that we live in the fruit basket of, of Europe, which is Spain, because we can get things very fresh. Um, while whilst they may be industrially farmed, sure that happens. Can you get everything organically? Absolutely not. Am I that much of a of a Nazi where it's like, oh, we are one hundred percent organic. We are only line caught. No, because we were working with a price point. Mm -hmm. When I could, it would be artisanal. 
more human contact with that and not just scraping the bottom of the ocean and pulling mm-hmm. up what you can. And a lot of that had to do also with, well, that's not in season now. I'm not going to serve that. Mm-hmm. And whether that's a tomato or or a fish where mm-hmm. it's like, there's no way that's coming locally. That's coming from, oh yeah, that's coming from the coast of Ireland. Well, okay. I would have to say, all right, well, what's my sphere, my the radius of which I'm willing to source goods. When I, when it came down to it, Ireland's really not that far away. Mm-hmm. We are in, we're on the water, but we're not in a hotbed of, we're not Galicia, mm-hmm. uh, except for a few runs of anchovies and tuna and squid. Like there aren't a whole lot of going out and, and, and pulling out abundant amounts of fish. Which is surprising because the the Basque coastline is known for all its fishing towns, right? So I think a lot of people who give a first, and that includes me, analysis of the Basque countryside, and it's dotted with all these fishing villages, assume that there's this plentiful wealth of fishing stock, and that's why all these villages are there, right? There is. Mm -hmm. There is, and they pull fish out of the ocean. It's not all consumed here. Mm. There is, so there is a, it's like an exchange, like, um, one another fish, for instance, that we could take a look at would be mackerel or Spanish mackerel, mm-hmm. and there's and there's the difference. The Basque people really don't like these fish very much. Mm. Uh, I would be hard pressed to go to any of the twenty best fish restaurants right now and look on their menu. I, this is uh, a bumper season right now f- uh, for Spanish mackerel, and there wouldn't be any on their list. Mm. On their on their menu, why? Because people are going to want merlu. Uh, well, merluza is kind of a bland fish, but Standard. they're going to want sole, rotabayo, turbo, um, which is the mar- majority comes from up in like the Holland area, or like the English Channel. Mm. Uh, that at least that's sold here. Merluza is coming from the Irish coast, so yeah, be be honest where it's coming from. In the brewery, we buy malt from England. Mm. England as a on a plane is one hour away. Is that too far? I don't think so. I, th- I think for the quality of what we get, that that's a pretty good purchase. It's mm-hmm. a pretty good. That's pretty good sourcing. And so, so going back to your story when you were in the Basque Culinary Center and what Aduritz was talking to you—is that his how you pronounce his name, Aduritz? Yeah. One of the questions I was going to ask you is: Did you ever feel, or especially early on in your seven years, a sense of intimidation or or insecurity about it? Because in my mind, the, the common lore is that entering into Basque society is difficult because of a certain insular nature or cuadrillas, if you will, or societies. But it sounds like you experienced something very different, that there was a certain openness and acceptance and and taking you at face value and giving you the, if you will, the benefit of the doubt and letting you just be who you are without resistance until you do something bad or something like that. Is that your experience when you came here? It that was my experience when I came here. I, I think that um, anybody is going to be thinking about what they're doing on a day to day basis, especially in the kitchen. You want you you cook for your you cook for yourself. You don't cook for your ego, but you cook for yourself, and then you cook for the guests. Yeah, that's who pays the bills. And if you forget the the experience of the guest, you're putting yourself in a in a bad place, you're putting yourself in a place where you're not going to succeed. So uh, sometimes you'll hear a lot of chefs saying like, oh no, I, I'm this, it's not for the chef, it's not for the consumers, I'm gonna just do what I wanna do. Well, great, well, when you get that far down the line and you are uh, actually not 
cooking anymore for the person in your dining room. Well, let's see how long you last. Now, granted, showing people what you want to do and, and, and taking that leap of faith mm. and having the confidence in my abilities that transcended the kitchen, uh, kind of faking it till you make it, uh, and then talking, being, like I said, respectful, um, doing whatever anybody asked me to do from an event side or a promotional side or co do a collaboration. Yeah, I'm up for that. Mm -hmm. We'll do it. I'm absolutely, I'm, I'm absolutely open to doing that. Working with these these guys, they they just said, you know what, Kevin's bringing more. He's bringing mm -hmm. a, he's bringing a lot to the city. And, and you know, um, one of the themes of this podcast is how the places that we live in and the cultures that we live in shift who we are and influence who we are. When something that struck me, and this is a bit of pop psychology, and I want you to confirm or deny this instinct. When I interact with a lot of Basque folks, the typical interpretation is that they're a little reserved, they're a little, you know, they're giving you the Heisman, a little bit of a an arm's distance. But if you start being frank and opening up and just saying what you think and just putting yourself out there and talking, they very quickly warm up to you as long as they realize that you're being authentic. They don't suffer fools gladly, right? But right. if you're not a fool, don't worry, it'll be fine. You're in, you can have that conversation. Does that sound right? Is that similar to what you've experienced? Or? That sounds exactly right in my case um, in the kitchen. It sounds right in my case just on the street, um, just walking by people. And, and I can't stop being who I am, which is uh, I'm a pretty affable, open guy who, uh, who I have rules. Like if I'm walking down the street and there's 20 people on the street, I don't say hi to every person. Mm. But if I'm walking down the street and one person's walking by me, I acknowledge their existence. And I'll say in Basque, Alpa or, mm -hmm. or Hola, or not Hola, because then they'll stop. Like, wait, he wants to talk to me. But I'll acknowledge yep. it like this. And people get, they're kind of like, why is this guy even mm -hmm. looking at me or acknowledging me? Mm -hmm. And the people that I interact with now on a daily basis, like on my route to the car or to the coffee shop, they get it. They get, it. okay, he's just being friendly. In the restaurant industry, I'm going to be open. I'm going to be myself. As an anecdote of, um, I was asked to do a, a dish for a, a gastronomic, uh, like bringing a lot of chefs together and doing a tasting menu from different chefs. So each chef had a different course. And I looked at who's on the, the list. I'm like, oh, geez, like these are some heavy hitters on here. And so the organizer's like, you know, for, kind of first come, first serve. So you know, we'll put, we want you to have what you want, but you, had to, you need to answer quickly. And I was like, immediately wrote, wrote back and I said, let everybody else put theirs in and I'll take what's left over. Because I, I was just like, I want to mm. see the, the creativity, what comes on here, and then I'll fill in the blank. I'm totally confident in that. So what turned out was like the first course, which would be typically like a, a raw fish or the, the last savory course, which is like kind of like the star. So they told me, all right, these are what's left. And it's between you and these, this other guy. And I said, send me the menu. I want to see it so I can kind of fill in the blank. And so I said, all right, well, the first course, I'm going to do this kind of very, very clean sashimi uh, style fit raw fish course, or I'm going to do a cheeseburger. <laughs> and they're like, they're like, I want to say they probably were offended um, when I wrote that back, mm -hmm. but 
they call me like, did you really like, is it like a metaphorical cheeseburger? <laughs> like, and I'm like, no, 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 it's, it's, it's a piece of meat, like ground meat with cheese on it, some pickles mm-hmm. and bread. I'll cut it in half and serve it. And they're like, why? I'm like, well, if people are going to want a hamburger after this meal, cause it was all tweezer food. It was mm-hmm. all foam. It was all like that kind of thing. And, and I'm like, you know what? Like I want people to leave happy. So I'm going to give them what they want at this point and kind of satisfy their soul. And eventually they didn't, they didn't, they took my sashimi course. Mm. But, you know, when that kind of story got around in the circles, people kind of laughed and like, you know what, that would have been, that would have been freaking awesome, man. Mm-hmm. If you, if you did a hamburger after, you know, all the, all that kind of fancy food, that, that kind of just speaks volumes to my place in it. I don't want to get, ever get too serious. And while I, I talk about ingredients, I'm honest about where we source from and just to sit there and be like, creativity, creativity, creativity. That's not me. Mm. I'm experience, experience, experience. So when I, uh, I see a table, uh, no, I haven't been in the restaurant in a while now, um, now that I'm on the, the, beer pro- the beer business, but the same thing happens when I see a table and I can tell, like this, this is my innate talent. Maybe I'm not the best cook in the world, but my innate talent is seeing someone, they're having a good time, I can add to it, or they're having a bad time and I can make them have a good time now. Mm. So it was that, it was, well, now we took over this restaurant and we start from nothing and we have been able to curate an atypical wine list in the region, meaning it's not all Criantha, Reserva, and wine from Ribera. Like mm-hmm. we were, this is seven years ago now. Like now you're starting to see uh, more wines infiltrate from uh, Bierzo or natural wines that are coming up from La Rioja or, or off regions. That was That was nothing then. No one wanted that. So we put together a really cool wine list, great cocktail program, uh, really atypical menu that was well priced and and we got a lot of chefs in coming in all the time, which is for me having your peers come in and eat your food on a regular basis. That's more important to me than anything else. Yeah, they secretly want that cheeseburger. They secretly want the cheeseburger, <laughs> yeah. and we had we had a great. They still have a they still have a burger on the menu, but it was kind of the thing that brought me to the next phase of my time here, which was beer. So which you, was we were sourcing these great products and 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 whatnot, but the the beer we were still serving Corona and Heineken, mm. and so uh, I'm like you know we can do better. And I searched far and wide. I finally found someone that I could get beer from from Barcelona that I was sourcing that they were sourcing from Denmark, Norway, England, and so I I took a leap of faith and I put a ten menu a ten bottle menu beer list out there and people. They responded. Mm-hmm. It went from 100% industrial sales to 99% craft sales overnight. Yeah. And then for me, I was like, oh, the light bulb went off. I'm like, oh, people want this now. I can give them a better experience in my restaurant. Like that's that was my goal. Uh, so then searching around, there wasn't at the time really great local beer. Now in 2018, there is a lot of great local beer. I, I talked to a friend who was here working in wine and I said, can you find a, a brewer? I want to make some beer. And we kind of started off being gypsy brewers and making a batch. And that batch was too big to sell in in my restaurant or, or our restaurant group. And then we wound up selling to other people. But those other people happened to be Arsac and Martin Bertegui mm-hmm. and my friends who helped me out before. 
And I think when I actually went and sat with their sommelier or their wine buyer or their beer buyer, they didn't have beer buyer, but their psalm or the chefs, they're like, yeah, this is great. Uh, looking out the side of their eye being like, who the hell is going to drink this? Mm-hmm. It tastes like fruit, but it's bitter. And so we were, we were pouring at the time, you know, our pale ale or our, our hoppy amber or our IPA. And so they bought it because we were buddies. Mm-hmm. And then a week later, they're all calling back like, wow, people really like it. At the time, I was still working in the kitchen, but at, at one point, it was really, really drawing me because I enjoyed creating that experience outside of just the four walls of the restaurant mm-hmm. and finding that people were really, for the better, um, enjoying something that is, was locally made and that was at a high level. And now you've created Basqueland Brewing Company. Let's let's go talk about it a little bit because what, what struck me when thinking about it, I think it's fair to say, and, and you touched upon it a little bit, that Spain was never known for the quality or really caring that much about beer. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, the culture usually gravitates towards wine. And up here in the Basque country, you can add cider, chacolí, and vermouth aperitivos like the Marianito, right? And that, that seems to be the bulk of all the the drinking that's going on here. But given that, how how was a, a craft artisan brewing company received? Were you pioneers? Were there a couple of others coming in? Um, how did that enter into the palates of the Basques? Um, or has it yet? Are you still doing incursions into the Basque country and beer? Um, well, at the time when we started, it was in its embryonic phase. I think there was even just the egg. Um, it, it hadn't even been fertilized yet. Mm. Um, there were two breweries that I'll mention that were doing a very good job at the time. Dugal's, started by Andrew Dugal, who is an Englishman who probably had the, the first good craft brewery in Spain, in Cantabria. Still around. Like He's kind of the, the godfather, I would say, of the, the craft brewer in Spain. Then there's Napar Beer. Napar Beer has been around for seven years. They're out of Pamplona. Really good beer, international uh, respect. Do a lot of collabs with breweries in the United States. Outside of that, yeah, remember like how how there was not even that much social media going going on seven years ago when I got here, and then even four or five years ago, like people getting themselves online to market their beer, it was still very hard to find them. So it was, mm-hmm. it was almost like a subculture that you had to tap into to find. So when we started, it was, here, try this IPA. Oh, great. What's IPA? Oh, okay. Let me go back. Mm-hmm. Uh, now there's, oh, try this. Like, but that went across the board with IPA, pale ale. The, the, the questions here were, is it blonde, tostada, toasted? or black beer. Mm-hmm. Those are the three categories that people knew. And then you had, um, we have all the time people coming into the tap room, couples, and the husband says, oh, I'm a big beer geek. Uh, and the wife says, do you have anything other than beer? I'm like, no, we don't. We, that's, that's what we do here. We don't, we're, we don't, we're not allowed to, nor do we serve wine mm-hmm. or coffee even. Um, okay, okay. Well, I'm like, let me pour you beer. No, I don't like beer. You don't just try this one. I don't like beer. No. Try this one just to swallow. And I, th- I think because it's a different style mm-hmm. and it's made well and there's no infection mm-hmm. and um, there's no defect that you might like, actually like it. And guess what? Mm-hmm. I'd say nine times out of 10, we have a convert mm-hmm. on our hands. Mm-hmm. So, 
But I would think it would happen, especially here. There's a certain respect we talked about of understanding the ingredient and understanding how you can coax the ingredient to give uh, the best possible flavor in your dish without overcomplicating it. And I would suppose what you're doing with craft brewery is figuring out, given your ingredients and combinations, how can you coax interesting flavors other than tostadas, oscuras, you know. Keller, etc. Sure. Just get those combinations out, and then people would appreciate sort of a deconstructing. How did you get these flavors from the ingredients and talking to you about it? It would seem to be part and parcel of the culture here to try to figure that out. Just to sign the same kind of interest people have in wine and in their cooking ingredients. Just put that over beer and have that conversation on on the beer side. It seems natural to me. Well, you touch on a great point, which is uh, let's compare wine to beer for a second in the culture. Mm. People look at wine as something that you drink to enjoy the flavor. I, and now someone in, outside of here is going to be like, wait, you don't drink beer to enjoy the flavor? You, you actually talk to people here like, no, I drink it to refresh my, to, to, mm, to become yeah. refreshed. And I found a puzzle because when I go to soccer games and they're, they're selling non-alcoholic beer there or lime infused beer, it, it confuses me. It's like... So you're not really enjoying the taste. Of, you're right. It's not enjoying the taste of it. It's almost like a functional product to put in your gullet in order to to keep on going. Exactly. So then, when you when you look at um, when you're when you're a restaurant, and when you're in a restaurant and you're purchasing beer and you're purchasing water, and you're purchasing industrial beer, water is actually more, more expensive. Yeah. And so you're actually thinking like, well, what's in this beer? <laughs> like, how can this beer be so goddamn cheap? And so. Um, so, th- like, let's take that, put that on the shelf, because there th- now there's a couple. Like, we're gonna roll into this. So, then it's like, oh well, people go out and they they have all this great food, and they have great wine to drink along with the great food, and then they drink something that's cheaper than water. That's this industrial beer mm-hmm. next to this food. For me, that was the straw that broke the camel's back for the experience of the diner, and I didn't want that to happen anymore. I wanted I, I wanted to. to to fill that gap, I wanted to 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 make that experience better. So, you know, once you actually have this person who says, "Well, I am looking for something different in beer," or "I don't like beer." Well, you don't like beer because you've always had bad beer. Try a good beer for once, and tell me if you hate beer. My wife, in particular, who she doesn't like uh, the traditional style beer, even a good. A, a good or great German Helles or lager. Like she said, no, that's not for me. And the other night she comes home, she's like, I had one of your beers tonight that I loved that I thought was fantastic. I'm like, well, what'd you like? what you have? And she said, I had the Norway Jose IPA. And I'm like, wait a second. You went from not liking beer to liking a 7.2% hazy IPA. Mm. Yes, I loved that. I thought it was fantastic. Tasted like pineapple juice. I'm like, okay, well, that's, that's that's the problem that we're actually creating now a little bit with with these new styles of beer, but it's also great because then we we're able to open up all these people because oh, there's so many different styles of beer from what you and I are consuming right now, which is a sour, salty beer mm-hmm. with a little bit of passion fruit in it that you don't even notice the passion fruit, but it's just a nice like like refreshing on a hot day mm-hmm. to a dense, dark coconut chocolate. Uh, imperial porter that you'll drink on a cold night in front of a fireplace. So we there's this kind of beer for every moment and something for every experience. Uh, I had a, a restaurant 
call me and they're like, we would love to do a seven course tasting menu with all your beers with food. And I'm like, that sounds terrible. <laughs> and, you know, from a business perspective, mm. people are like, wait, you get some more beer. I'm like, yeah, but the person is going to walk away mm, so yeah. just full and not satisfied with with the the dining experience. And so I said, look, no, do a wine with that course. Do a sake. You want to do a, be, be different? Do a sake with that course. Do a wine with this course. Do a mead with this one. What's mead? I'll do, the, do a beer with this one. Like refresh the palate. It's not about like just always selling beer. It's about making sure that the people are having a great time. And if we make good beer, we'll survive. We'll be fine. And that actually sounds more satisfying to have a, a tasting course with not all beer, but it has all the different modalities of, you know, alcoholic beverages so that you can understand how beer fits as a facet in that rather than just beer, 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 and then just muddle all the whatever seven different types of beer flavors, but then show a really strong candidate that can fit and hold its own with a wine, a spirit, or what have you, and then understand that it can be part and parcel of a, of a good meal, not just a functional drink. Yeah. Yeah, ab- absolutely. We're at the place now where we're not uh, clawing for air. Like we've, we're two and a half years into this. Now we're actually a business that can pay its bills and um, I can sleep at night, you know? So, so now that I can pick my head up and say, okay, what do I want this to be? It's really about like, it needs to find its place and we need to find our place. And it's not just about like just jamming beer down people's throats. And, and I think, you know, big beer does this too much. Like this is the beer of the Basque country when that beer is made in Barcelona and you're like, let's, let's just be honest about what this, what this is. We don't expect anybody to drink Basque land over and over and over and over again. This isn't Budweiser. You don't have your brand. Like this is for people to experiment move on, try something else, come back to it, revisit it again. Oh, that's too strong for me. I'm going to come back to that later. This is a, this is a totally alive product and it's an alive industry. The, the collaboration that goes on amongst us who are all, tr- who are small, trying to survive, which uh, or harkens me back to the days of, of being a chef early on here, whereas people wanted to help me out. Mm-hmm. People want to help me out now. Mm-hmm. And then we want to help. We want to kind of pay it forward without being cliche to new brewers who are like, Hey, um, you know, we could see new brewers in our brewery kind of sitting there and everything's open when we have a little tasting room sitting there taking notes and they're like, Oh my God, why are you helping me? I'm like, because if you fail, it's worse for me. Mm. I, I want you to, to do, to do well. And if you make bad beer, it's bad for me too. It means people that are drinking craft beer, someone might say, I just had a bad craft beer and I don't like craft beer. Do you ever get an, uh, just, just came to my mind, resistance from people who think that you're bringing in, for lack of a better term, a sort of globalized hipster concept of the artisanal craft brewery into a pristine Basque culinary culture? Do you ever get that kind of a resistance to it? If you know what I mean, you know, there's a certain veneer, especially in the media about Basque culture and its cuisine and how amazing it is. And now you're bringing in a craft brewery, which is sort of a westernized hipster. And I'm not saying that this is my view, but it could be a view that could be shared from some people. And you're injecting that into the pure bloodstream of the Basque culinary society. Do you ever get that kind of a reaction or backlash from from people at all or i I don't um that the thought has crossed (laughs) my mind no the thought has crossed my mind and i actually think maybe there is 
there is some. I mean, I think what what um, I actually found it when I went back to New York maybe a month ago. I walked into a place and um, I was just in the mood for an IPA. I drink every style of beer, but I was in the mood for an IPA. And I walked into kind of a new restaurant. I asked for one. And they're like, oh, we don't serve IPAs. Like it, as though it was mm-hmm. like, yeah. no, we've kind of, we, we have sours and we have, yeah, I think, I can't remember what the, the, it was like some nice hipster mm-hmm. lager, like mm-hmm. in a can, which cans, I love them. But it was like, they had already moved on from IPA. At Wilts, like IPA is now vernacular mm-hmm. in, in the United States where everybody has it in their fridge. So it's not new anymore. It's not novel. Here, the craft beer is so new that they're, the only backlash to it is startup breweries who don't necessarily have the experience yet to make great beer and that people would be like, well, I don't like craft beer. Well, what'd you try to have? Oh, I had this one, this one, this one, this one. There, that's the only backlash that I'm seeing right now. Not that, not a, like we're globalizing. Right, like you're invading or something. And that, that concept of invading is kind of a, almost patronizing to Basque culture. It's almost like romanticizing or exoticizing the Basque culture into this pristine object that is, that should be immune from influence from other cultures because it's so precious. And I think that, that happens often with people talking about the culinary style here. And I don't think the even the Basque culture would say they're that way. They accept influence in, in different ways. Or, well, right. um, this is a this is a is more controversial than my beer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, um, yeah. <laughs> which is which is this, which is uh, uh, I love it when when someone's like, oh, but that's that's Basque. I'm like, uh, no, that's a pepper. <laughs> that does exactly. not come from right. northern Spain. Mm-hmm. Oh, where does it come from then? Galicia. Yeah, no, no, no. But it was brought from. Oh, originally, it, it, yeah, uh, from uh, South America. Uh, uh, Colonizers. I can't say it. Like, Colonizers. Thank or... <laughs> you. Like, yeah, the conquistadors. Yeah. Like, my Spanish pal is not letting mm-hmm. me say colonization anymore. Mm-hmm. Jeez. So that the talo. Mm-hmm. But the Basque corn tortilla. I'm like, oh, the, look the at tortilla. that. tortilla. It's amazing. I had it and I thought, wait, what is, this is Mexican tortilla with very thick masa, very masa oriented tortilla. Yeah. Comes from corn. Mm-hmm. Comes from corn. Where'd the corn come from, guys? Yeah. Uh, Mesoamerica, maybe? And, and so there's a lot of things that are adopted. Now they're just, because they've been here for 50 years, 100 years, 200 years, 300 years, 400 years, it's Basque. Mm-hmm. No, it's been co-opted. It's been adopted. It's been changed, but these ingredients are not Basque. Beans, same thing, um, not from here, that have then been brought back from exploration. And mm-hmm. then uh, once you know, people grow up with it as from being a child, that's theirs. They've now co-opted that experience, that, that ingredient as their own. I think you know, when it comes to beer, it, what, this wasn't a beer culture. It, at least where we are, it was a chocolatey cider and wine culture. Mm-hmm. Beer was something completely foreign until may, like maybe a hundred years ago for Spain. So we look now at, you know, and this isn't about, it's not about the business of it. It's just about, yeah, there's a bit of a globalization, glo- oh geez, I can't say that either. Globalization. globalization um, going on with, uh, with all products. But if you look at something, someplace like Italy, wine consumption is going down, beer consumption is going up. Well, why is that? Because they're finding it, the, the youngsters are looking for different flavors. They're looking for, for something different. Now, I personally love how dynamic the wine culture is in Italy and France. I'm actually a little bored with the wine culture in Spain. Mm. And 
I think it's because of the globalization of the North American market and the English market wanting big, big wines. Mm. And then all next thing you have is Rioja changing their entire the way that they make wines. And I'm talking about a lot of different houses, a lot of different a lot of different bodegas going to big, fruity, jammy wines with a ton of oak, not paying attention at all to the terroir of the grape and just adding in just American oak. And, and then next thing you know, it's a hundred point Parker wine. Well, mm. great. We sold out everything at a, at a, at a huge profit. Yeah. But at what cost? Cause you've actually lost your, your roots. So like going to places now, now we love wine. Um, we, the collective, we in the brewery, uh, going to a place like Ricondo and drinking a red wine from 1975 at an amazing price uh, that actually has white wine blended into it for acidity and it's been stored perfectly for that many years. Yes, like granted, like it's been it's been laid down to rest, but that wine was such a better quality wine made by the same producer 40 years ago, 50 years ago, 60 years ago that now those guys are all they they're it's a gas station wine. I guess I'm going back to that anecdote you told me when you you know, ordered an IPA and you got the response, oh, we don't do IPAs anymore. That that raises a perceived difference that I have sensed. And I want you to react whether you think it's true or I'm, I'm romanticizing the Basque culture. A difference I sensed is, especially when living in the United States, those kind of responses, oh, we don't do IPA anymore. There are these cultural layers of interpretation around food and drink about what is hip, what is hot, what's the next thing. There's always that game going on, that interpretation game about what you should be paying attention to next. What is the next thing that experts should be focusing on? What is the thing that's passe? There's always that layer, bubble, around a lot of what we talk about there. Something that I sense here when talking to people who care about food, who think about cooking, who think about drinking... That kind of pressure, the anxiety of influence, the anxiety of thinking about what's next or what's hot or what should be culturally appropriate, it's not really there. It doesn't tug in with the same strength and anxiety, if you will, as in the United States. It's almost a shrug. Well, if it's good, if the ingredient is good and we treat it the right way, even if we've done it the same way for 400 years, great. It's great. Or if something new comes along from wherever source and it's good and it tastes great and there's a disarming honesty about it, great. We'll include it. And it's not about anxiety of influence or hipster notions of what's good, what's bad, what should be shed. It's just almost a disarmingly open analysis of what's good, what we like, and let's take it and move on. I agree. There's an asterisk there, mm. which is they are weary of new food, new styles of food, new restaurants being open because whether it's five years, 10 years, 20 years, anything that has not been Basque that has come into the city really hasn't been done well. Mm. And so for, th there's only a small amount of, of the culture here that really travels extensively for, for food. Let's just be perfectly honest. There's a lot of, of people here that they work for a living. They're, they're middle-class and they, they work for a living. They're, 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 they're immensely into their community and, and maybe a lot of travel is, is domestic down to the south or uh, some will travel for, for sports events. Um, and then there's, there's just the more mobile class that can go travel and then experience different foods. 
So the vast majority of the people that live here are haven't been exposed to, say, good Chinese food, mm-hmm. whether it's good westernized Chinese food or good Chinese food from China. They haven't had it. And when I go to, I don't even go to Chinese food restaurants here anymore. We tried, we got like ketchup instead of Szechuan sauce. <laughs> it's it's so embarrassing. Mm-hmm. And and I, I'm not even Chinese and I'm embarrassed. Whatever that was, it was, mm-hmm. it was like fettuccine with like ketchup on it. And it's mm-hmm. like, this can't be, this can't be the end all be all of what people think Chinese food is. Because then that's when you get into the conversation of, well, Basque food's the best. Why? Because I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm like what about rest? Chinese food? Like, mm-hmm. and I'm saying the best, but... Like you can't live on that alone. But why would I eat that? That Chinese food. That uh, Chinese food stinks. No, that Chinese food stinks. Mm-hmm. Like uh, you need to go to. Which this goes back place. to your concept, La Madame, perhaps to open that palate a bit more to an eyes. It's a small restaurant. I think we outsized in in exposure to the outside world. I think it's been <laughs> it's been open for seven years, and you meet someone, and, and they and we get in a conversation. Well, what did you do before? Oh, I I was a chef at La Madame. Oh, that new place. Still. Seven years in mm-hmm. that new place, so I think there's a lot of like, oh, let's see if they make it, and if they make it, then we'll go because then there might they might actually be good. <laughs> Seven years later, yeah. whereas you know, in new restaurants in New York, oh. Chicago, Madrid, they're packed from day one mm-hmm. because people want to see what what's new. So it, it makes perfect sense. Well, well, let me tell you what I like about this conversation is that it's weaving between you know culinary themes. Uh, beer craft themes and the culture of acceptance of this and back and forth. And, and that's part of the nature of this program. I want to shift gears a little bit, but but I will include on the page associated with this podcast episode links to Basqueland Brewing Company, La Madame, and, and everything we've been talking about. So listeners can go online at www.thismustbetaplace.io and find all the links to what we're talking about. And I do want to shift gears and and talk about living here independently of work and you know personal projects like that tell us about your your travels around the basque region whether it's spain or france now that you mentioned you you go a lot to france as well to find product and any key experiences or places that are memorable because a lot of people when they think about basque country they think san sebastian and they think of the theme park of the pinchos restaurants so tell us a little bit about other features of this area that people should think about as they think about this area? Well, it's uh, it's incredibly diverse for, in the sense of topography. Um, now, remember, the Basque Country extends you know, up into France. So um, until the Pyrenees kind of starts to, starts to level out, the French Basque culture is quite different than the Gibusquin Basque culture, which is, I say, even different than the Biscayan Basque mm. culture. Biscaya meaning towards Bilbao is. And then there's the often forgotten area, which is the Araba, mm-hmm. so the Alava. Uh, where La Rioja Alta is is situated and Vitoria. So what do we have? We have oceans with with great surfing. Like if you're an activity person, you you've got you've got it covered. We're two hours away from great skiing during those those months. When the weather holds, uh, you have great isolated small beaches. It's not like that long, huge beach like we're used to on like the east coast of the United States or in Malibu, or not Malibu, but uh, Santa California. Monica, California, like in San Sebastian, there's a scallop-shaped bay with a with a beach, and then you have to go a town over, and then there's a little beach in Oreo, and then mm-hmm. you have to go another town over, and there's another little beach. That they're pretty much, except I, I can't speak for uh, La Concha because I believe that's um, 
that's a normal beach, but a lot of them are man-made mm. um, as far as beaches go and, and our, our idea of what a beach should be. Now, if you go up just past Biarritz, uh, a couple more miles, that beach gives way to that North Carolina-style long beach. So there's the, that diversity of plains like down in the Araba Mm-hmm. to mountains, to beach, to sea, to to river. Um, and it can be, and it can actually get quite extreme. So in, in that instance, uh, geographically, it's really, really diverse and very satisfying. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love that. Um, then the people, you know, you get outside of San Sebastian or Bilbao, you're dealing with a whole different type of person. You're dealing with people that have, um, you know, even different dialects, of Uskera, Uskera is the, the, the Basque language, um, that they'll speak different, slightly differently than someone in Biscaya. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're very, very fun people and they're very um, open. Actually, they might seem closed, but mm-hmm. it's kind of like in New York or on the subway. They're in their own little world until you kind of knock on their door and say, hey, uh, can you help me with this? And then they're like absolutely willing to help you once they realize like, yeah, you're a good person or mm-hmm. you're just, oh, you just, you're, you want to know more about our culture. Like they're more than happy to share. I became aware of you uh, by reading a couple of pieces you wrote for Anthony Bourdain's Parts Unknown site, one on cider houses in the region, one on your proposed pinchos itinerary in town. And I also read your piece for Roads and Kingdoms, which is a sort of independent I don't know how to describe it, travel journalism, which is also associated with Bourdain, on 14 things to know before you go to the Basque country. And I'll have links to all those articles on, on the site, by the way. And, you know, I've asked this, this type of question a few times in the podcast already, but I, I, have, I find it an important question. Do you wrestle with dual impulses in you? One, to discover and share the beautiful things about this place, but two worry about overexposing San Sebastian and the Basque region and being part of the cause for its possible decline into excessive tourism? How do you wrestle with being part of the culture, loving it, sharing it, but also at the same time being the cause of a potential dilution of it? Oh, well, I, I think you'll, you'll agree. I pretty much wrestle with duality in every aspect of my life, let alone this one. I look at it as a raising the bar so to speak, because am I going to be the cause of overexposing the Basque country? Absolutely not. No, there's a certain reader who reads Rose and Kingdoms and a certain reader that, reader that reads Parts Unknown. And those people, I welcome that they come here. It's already hard enough to get to San Sebastian or the Basque region that you're already saying to that tourist, you need to take the extra step to get here. Mm-hmm. This isn't just, Interesting. we're going to party it out. We're uh-huh. going to make a lot of noise. We're going to get drunk and, and eat cheap food. No, and it's not about price. Mm-hmm. You can absolutely do the best country on, on a very, very low budget, but it's a matter of like, no, it's harder to get to. Mm-hmm. It's, it's elevated citizenship almost. So for me, I'm not, that, that doesn't keep me up at night at all. Mm. I would like to say that uh, with those roundups, if you will, of these articles, the more and more I do them, the more and more I'm, I'm circling back and I'm kind of promoting the same places. And it's because these places have set the bar very, very high in the local market and they are carrying a lot of people on their coattails. Mm. Now, I don't expect 
a lot of the people here to be listening to this in English and then he- hear me say it. But it's <laughs> the same thing. No, but it's the same thing that that we do. You know, we don't we don't want to be getting people's table scraps. And I think we, as a city, as restaurants, a, as uh, brewers, as bodega, as as uh, winemakers, we can all do better. What do we do when the old guard passes? Because mm. they're eighty, seventy mm-hmm. something, sixty something, fifty something, and then there's Andoni Adaris, who is doing some really wonderful things in town, changing. Not he has Mugaritz, which is one of the top ten restaurants in the world. It's at two Michelin stars, and then he has Topa, which is a Mexican, mm-hmm. uh, I should say Mexican, more like a pan Latino style restaurant. He's doing great, great things. But you'll hear it on every documentary, guaranteed. San Sebastian is the most Michelin stars per capita in the world. Well, for how long? Mm-hmm. Those might I, go very quickly because there's an old guard on it exactly and so um you know uh, elena's ready to pick up the mantle mm-hmm. at at our for sure but how long and who are you marketing to the people that can afford a several hundred euro tasting menu and then there's the great pincho bars and believe me they're great but then there's a lot of like i liken it to going to chinatown in new york if it doesn't feel right don't eat there mm-hmm. and i have a lot of people who are like Oh, I ate as one place. I was kind of hungry, and I got this pincho, and then I kind of spent the night on the toilet. And like, mm-hmm. well, don't do that. Don't, don't, don't go off the grid. I think if you read the the pinchos piece I did for for parts, uh, parts unknown. unknown, it starts out, you know, pretty much saying save yourself a mediocre dining experience. Follow this guide, or reach out to somebody else you trust that's been to the city. But just there isn't genius on every corner, mm-hmm. and. We do ourselves an injustice when we pat ourselves on the back because a bunch of other really, really great chefs have done such a great job that we are riding their coattails and we pat ourselves on the back. That's that's a great way to become mediocre. It's interesting what you said earlier, and I hadn't quite thought about it like that. How, getting to San Sebastian is not as simple as hopping on a plane and going to Cancun, let's say from the United States to Cancun or what have you. It It takes commitment. It takes a little planning. It takes more thinking than your usual vacation so it is somehow insulated from from those throngs from coming in and at the same time i think it's history you know it's long history of of late 20th century terrorism i still there's still some hangover out there i've heard some people say oh you're going to san sebastian are you going to be okay it's weird but there's still some people who are looking at it warily even now in 2018 which is kind of strange and people look at it sort of side-eyed sometimes so there is some uh weatherproofing there but i do worry when i see parte vieja in summer thronged with all kinds of revelers drunk out of their minds and the gutters become gutters for different kinds of bodily fluids coming out of it so it is worrisome but those are the tides of time well it's it's um it's not something i want to go out and and jump into i we benefit from that as producers of beer you know we do of course (laughs) Uh, I'm not going to be disingenuous yeah. there, mm-hmm. but you have to remember too, you know, when the person who writes on the wall in Spanish, tourists go home, mm-hmm. you're like, you know, you'd be the person who would vote for Donald Trump if you lived mm-hmm. in the United States. No, what you have to be conscious of is, first of all, the, all these bars and restaurants that are here, go to them on a Wednesday night in February and see how they're doing. 
mm-hmm. see how they can't pay their bills, see how, or, or that, you know, that they have now reduced their amount of employees from in the summer 10 to one or two. And it's because of the, of the seasonality of it. So mm-hmm. I am one of those people who, when people just get so down on the weather here and the doldrums of winter, yeah, I'm not the happiest camper. I want it to be sunny and 70 degrees too, but I'm like, this is nice. Mm-hmm. This is this is the real Basque country. When it's sunny, that's the dreamy Basque country. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and especially after the recent weather we've had. Yeah. But, you know, there are things that make this this region great. Part of that are the diverse restaurants uh, in the sense of Pincho's bars, restaurants, cafes, uh, high-end restaurants, and, and sociedades that relies on this tourist traffic to survive. And if it just means from July 15th to August 31st, you can't go to your favorite bar, I'm sorry. Like, mm-hmm. that's just the way it is. You can go and you're gonna probably meet somebody awesome. My One of my favorite Pincho's bars is Gambara. Mm-hmm. And I can't not get into conversations with people there that are either from England or Australia, United States or other Spanish people. And I do see other people like citizens from here, from the Basque country, my my fellow San Sebastian, Donostiarras, who are braving the elbowing and whatnot. But that's rubbing's racing. You know, mm-hmm. that's the quote from Days of Thunder with Tom Cruise. Like, you got to get up there. And, and that's part of that's part of the experience. Yeah. And you rather than be like, oh, all these people are here in my city, be like, all these people are here in my city. Change your tone. And be excited about it mm-hmm. instead. So what's next for you? How do you keep moving over time? I'm a human being like everybody else because I don't know exactly what's next. Mm. I have three kids under the age of eight. I have a brewery under the age of three. Mm. Um, <laughs> I pretty much am just trying to keep myself, above, my head above water right now with trying to be a good dad, a good husband, a good CEO, mm-hmm. keeping my business in the right direction. Now with that, now that I've kind of, lower the expectations on that, the duality we're talking about. Now I'm going to come in with where we're growing the brewery. We're doing a lot more uh, here in the community. We want to open a tap room uh, in San Sebastian proper that will change the game. Not, I'm not talking about beer, but I'm talking about like how people perceive food um, and then beer's place mm-hmm. with food. Mm-hmm. I'm excited about trying to get back into the kitchen now that would be just one foot back in the kitchen. I would probably never be on the line again. But doing something like that, and and then also uh, working with the the tourism board here to do something that is shining a light on not just us as brewers, but the Basque Country as a beer destination, because we have some other great breweries here, like Bidasoa out of Irun, Malagasona out of Uyartsun, Lagar out near Bilbao. Napa beer, which which tech, you know, some people would say it's Pamplona. Mm-hmm. Some people say no, that's definitely the best the best Navarra, country as well. Um, so we work really really well with with uh, some of the great fellow breweries here. So to shine a light on that and not say this is how you have to do it, this is how we say you need to make beer, but no, like we are actually pound for pound a a powerhouse mm-hmm. uh, in the in the country of Spain. So okay. for me, it's it's really about sustainability. At this point, I, I've I've overextended myself before, and now knowing that that my priorities are my family first, 
And now that I have kind of both feet underneath me, have this urge to create. So we're we're doing both. And I think the Basque country and culture is a great place to have an anchoring and that stability. And here we are drinking, I want to say it's Gatsagose. Is that the name of the beer? Yeah, Gatsagose. Yeah. It's a little salty, a little sour, and it's made with Basque sea salt. And then I'm the one who usually says I'm not a beer person, but here I am and I enjoy this very much. And I'm not just saying that because I'm being polite, because it has that contrast between salt and sour in a beer. And it's just biting me in the right way. <laughs> so thank you. If people want to learn more about you and about Baskland Brewing Company and about other projects that you may be involved with, where should they go online? Where should they find all about this? You just go ahead and Google Baskland uh, or Baskland Brew, and that will lead you to a bunch of you know, third-party articles about us. It also leads you to our website and then our social media sites. Uh, I think prob- you know, a, a picture says a thousand words, so going on our Instagram probably is is an exercise in you might feel dumber at times for seeing some of the the videos we do um which went then we're just having fun uh like around christmas time we did a carpool karaoke to mariah carey is all i want for christmas is you it's it's fun it's absolutely fun and it's absolutely unique experience as well so i i think it's it's just something that you don't get to see all the hard work that goes into it on the back end but you see the reward for sure. Kevin, thank you for sharing all about what you're doing and, and the personal details and undercurrents around that as well. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to share, like, or leave a review for this podcast since all this activity helps us get noticed and grow. I would also love it if you visited thismustbetheplace.io where more episodes, videos, and written content all live. On that site, you will find a page associated with this episode. And on it, you can find more about Kevin and links to additional destinations such as information about Baskland Brewing Company and some of the articles he has written about San Sebastián and the Basque Country. And of course, you can always subscribe and receive the latest, greatest episode on your favorite app and device. Until the next time... This must be the place.